Welcome to Naturally Nourished, a food is medicine podcast that delivers cutting edge information and solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought out by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only and should not be used in place of any medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment from a licensed health professional. Now welcome your host, Allie Miller, integrative dietitian and owner of Naturally Nourished, and her vice president, integrative dietitian Carly Vogler. This is episode number 11, and we're talking all about the HPA access today. Thank you all for listening. Uh, The HPA access is something that we start a lot of our clinical conversations with in session. So, Allie, why don't you kind of tell everyone what the HPA access stands for and why we talk about it, why it's significant? Yeah, I'm I'm nervous and excited to be talking about this topic, I think, because it's, I think, one of both Carly and and my favorites. And uh, like she said, such a clinical pearl and such an overlooked element of dysfunction in the body. Um, so I'm going to do my darndest <laughs> to stay concise, and I welcome you, Carly, to interrupt me and redirect and rein me in when needed. <laughs> I'll, I'll reel you in where needed. Okay, okay, good, good, good. I know we're going to have to break this down into multiple episodes, so today's focus is really talking about what the HPA axis is, but we're totally going to have to do a separate episode on adrenal fatigue and, and other elements that I'll, that I'll start to kind of give some, some little sprinkling dust over. Um, so, so with that being said, the HPA axis stands for the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis of the body. Common speak is referred to as the fight or flight mechanisms of the body. So you may have heard that the body is either in a fight or flight or rest and digest mode. And so we're looking at this parasympathetic or sympathetic nervous system response and the body cannot be in both at the same time. So a lot of times when a patient is chronically stressed, and um, you know this can be a, a huge gamut of definitions of, of what stress is, of course, but chronically stressed has post-traumatic stress disorder, or even moderately stressed based on how their system responds to stressors, can drive imbalance throughout the body, which can play a role on hormonal dysfunction, autoimmune disease, it can throw um, inflammatory cascades, and all sorts of of baseline dysfunction. And I think it's important to first start with defining what is stress, because the first one we all think about is the psychological stress, but there's also so many different forms, the physiological. So let's start with touching on what stress can be and some examples of all the different types. Yes. So uh, yeah, exactly, Carly. So, you know, stress can be both physiological as well as psychological. So psychological first, because that's the easiest, the first we think of psychological stress can be, uh, you know, interpersonal relationships, dynamics with family, it can be work-induced, it can be anxiety or anticipatory stress, Um, it can also be rumination or worrying about past events and and, um, how we've spoken to someone, what we said, overthinking, and so I I often say, you know, rumination only leads to bloat, Um, but, you know, Mental stress is, is going to be anxiety, overthinking, um, fatigue, and an and overridden mind. Um, so it can be seen with mental health disorders, but also increased demand, like executive cognitive functioning and, and a high workload. Now, physiological stress is a little bit more complex to understand because this is a stressor in the body 
not derived from how the brain is functioning. And so this is things like toxic metal exposure would be a physiological stress on the body or dysbiosis, overgrowth of bad bacteria in the body or parasite um, growth in the gut would be a physiological stress and a tax on this HPA access. Also things like um, micronutrient deficiencies and increased demand to the body, like carrying a child, recovering from an injury or a big surgery. Um, and then of course, within that surgery is usually a sterile environment, dysbiosis, um, you know, exposure to viruses, bacteria, and things like that. So the demands on the body and what's living in the body and how the body is functioning can also drive the stress access regardless of how we perceive stress on a day-to-day basis. I think that's that's really important to identify. Definitely. And before we go into each part of the body, so the hypothalamus, the pituitary gland, the adrenal glands, let's I really love the visual that you give of when we were caveman and we were stressed. It was usually a physiological or physical stress of running from an animal. So what tell, kind of explain what happens to the body in that terms. I think it really helps everyone realize how everything shifted and maybe we haven't caught up with evolution and how our body responds. Yeah. And I think that that's a great connection of why chronic illness and lifestyle disease is on the rise, you know, with, we've heard with increases in technology that that influences the stress demand. I mean, just thinking back of when we used to have snail mail for communication before faxes, before emails, before the internet, before smartphones, you know, we are the demand put on individuals in a day-to-day basis and the turnaround and the processing of information on the human brain is absolutely astounding. Um, And that really drives this fight or flight mechanism when we're typically stationary. So, you know, we've heard that sitting is the new smoking. Well, that's further exacerbated when the mind is extremely taxed. And so, yeah, totally. Thinking back in Paleolithic times, stress would be running from a cheetah or something like that, you know, a survival mechanism. Physiologically, the body still responds to a mental stressor in the same way. So now we're stressed driving to work late. You know, oh my gosh, why did I change my outfit again? La la la. That rumination goes and it just kind of cascades. What happens in the body in fight or flight, um, or maybe, you know, we're cramming on a computer or or whatnot, but we're typically um, stationary. And what happens physiologically is that the blood is typically centrally located to fuel the organs. All those organs are in kind of the torso area of the body. Um, In fight or flight mode, all of that blood goes out to the appendages, the hands or the feet, so that we can literally like run or flee from, uh, you know, a a predator, um, which typically again is not happening. We have vasoconstriction, um, versus dilation. So blood pressure influence, uh, increased blood pressure. We can have shorter breath, um, shorter respiration, and that can also drive increased heart rate. We have reduced salivary enzymes, which is really huge to, to, uh, note, Um, In fact, we see about a quarter of the amount of enzymes produced in a stressed state than in a relaxed state, which is why it's called uh, rest and digest, you know. And so in a stress or fight or flight mode, even if we're eating the healthiest nourishing meal, we may not be absorbing or assimilating, bringing those nutrients into the cells of the body if we're not able to adequately break them down. And that can also lead to digestive disturbances like bloat, increased food sensitivity for sure. And then other stress response is 
the primary nerve in the body, the vagus nerve, which goes from the brain stem down to the colon, can either drive peristalsis, irritable bowel driving loose stools, um, you know, like flaky loose stools or bowel urgency, or we can see uh, paralysis of that nerve and driving constipation. In fact, I have many patients that don't have as frequent bowel movements during the week than they do on the weekends, and that's often due to this, this fight or flight mechanism. And digestively, even before it kind of gets into the intestines and either constipated or moves through too quickly, if you're stressed and not really chewing, you don't produce those enzymes that help you start the process of digestion where you're breaking down the food in the mouth. And that's where it's supposed to start. So if people are kind of mowing through their food, eating right. really quickly, you fit, you miss that whole first step and it's like a cascade from there on out. So you're missing both the mechanical element of breaking down and then you are missing the enzymatic chemical element um, of, of the enzymes because you're only at a quarter. And then furthermore, stress also um, plays a role on the acidity in the gut. It actually buffers the acidity. So it makes us more susceptible to things like H. pylori, to ulcers, um, and to inadequate digestion. Um, We don't uh, activate as much intrinsic factor, which helps for B12. And it can really create vicious cycles because then as B12 goes low, we have more anxiety and so forth and so forth. So taking a deep breath and some slow breathing before yes. mealtime is actually very therapeutic a lot of times. Yeah, I totally just talked to a patient about that when we were looking at a stool assessment. Um, her pancreatic enzyme production, meaning you know the chemicals, most of the chemical enzymes that she was making was adequate, but yet she had a lot of uh, malabsorption of proteins and things like that. So we talked beyond stimulating her digestive juices with Bragg's raw apple cider vinegar and giving her some enzymes to support being mindful before mealtime. And we use the five, seven, eight breathing technique, which I guess is appropriate to talk about real quick now. If, if I think, you know, that you guys really understanding how stress is going to drive dysfunction in your body. And forgive me, I'm not sure who came up with it, but I, I've seen it referenced and, and I've learned about it. I, I think I learned about it from Dr. Andrew Weil. Um, and, and how it works is it's breathing in for a count of five, in through your nose, holding that breath for seven, a count of seven and releasing out the mouth for a count of eight. And so it's it's inhaling for one, two, three, four, five, holding for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and then releasing with a kind of whooshing for eight. And um, it, it feels as if that hold during seven is really long and that you don't have enough air to breathe out for eight, but it is physiologically, meaning the body cannot be in fight or flight mode during deep breathing. It is literally the only way to pump the brakes on this stress response. And so I think that I work really well with like numbers like that, like knowing that like that is a one, two, three step punch to really regulate this, this axis in the body. And something that you could do at bedtime as well to help you calm down. So you're getting some restful sleep. Yep. So with this, you're either in fight or flight mode or rest and digest, as yes. Allie just went through. So now let's talk about how that stress, whether it's physical or, or psychological, impacts this access and what happens in each of these glands and what it means for everyone. Sure. So so let's go in, in order. So the HPA access, we'll start with the hypothalamus. So the hypothalamus plays a big role with the general balance of the body. So we're looking at things like circadian rhythm, which is the body's natural energy cascades. Uh, if we have dips in energy, our sleep cycles, if we're waking well rested, it also plays a big role with body temperature. 
And I see that personally, I also see that clinically with patients. And it's one of those questions that's really important to ask is, do you tend to run cold? Do you tend to run hot? Or do you notice that you have body temperature dysregulation? For instance, when you get hot, you have a hard time cooling down and and vice versa, um, because that's a huge notation of hypothalamic dysfunction. Another one is a role in your metabolism, so both your your basal metabolic rate, how your organs uh, burn calories, and then satiety. So we'll often see with patients with eating disorders and even just over-restrictive behaviors, so maybe they're not diagnostically bulimic or anorexic, but but chronic dieters, we see hypothalamic dysfunction, um, most definitely. And then the hypothalamus also plays a big role on the thyroid gland. It actually stimulates the thyroid releasing hormone. So the thyroid releasing hormone is what's going to drive that release of that T4 from the from the gland, and it's it's important before maybe we go on to the pituitary to to note that this HPA access is actually being tied into directly the HPA T access, which would be the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal thyroid, because we'll talk about a couple different elements of it and how it influences the thyroid. Beyond that, it's also called the HPAG access, pulling in gonadal health, uh, meaning the, the testicular health and male hormonal expression, as well as uh, the HPAO for ovarian health and the female hormone, reproductive hormone uh, expression in the body. So sexual hormones and thyroid hormones are both very correlated with the responses of this mechanism. And I think it's important to point out that this access is an access and they're all related because there's so much signaling that goes on between them. It's another example of how you really need to think of the body as a whole. Because if you're not producing progesterone, for instance, that's made somewhere else, it's, you know, the pituitary sends the signal to make the progesterone. So it's another, you know, it's big picture. And hopefully this is starting to connect some dots. But just so you really realize why we're talking about this, to connect all the pieces is really the big picture, I think. Yeah. Um, So the hypothalamus is in the brain. So let's just move to the other one that we're going to touch on in the brain, the pituitary gland. Yeah. So pituitary is also found in the brain and the pituitary stimulates the thyroid stimulating hormone. Now, this is the common one. The, the, the thyroid releasing hormone is not commonly assessed. The TSH, the thyroid stimulating hormone, which is made by the pituitary gland, not by the thyroid, and I say that many times because so many physicians, when they assess a patient's thyroid function, only use the TSH as a marker of thyroid function, and that's because the TSH is a feedback mechanism. So if you are overproducing thyroid hormone or your hyperthyroid, the TSH is going to be extremely low, um, you know, at, at zero or 0.2 or whatnot. Um, and we're looking at the TSH as it elevates beyond four is going to start to show hypothyroidism or too low output by the gland, meaning that that stimulating hormone is increasing, telling the gland, we need more, we need more, we need more. But what's a concern is often we will have patients mistreated or misdiagnosed where the TSH can be elevated and the T4 and the T3, the thyroid hormones actually, the, the active and the inactive forms of thyroid are actually well within range. And so the TSH can be elevated by autoimmune gland dysfunction. It could be Hashimoto's, that thyroid peroxidase could be elevated, thyroid antibodies could be elevated, or even even bigger picture, there could be a pituitary tumor. And so, you know, we want to really make sure when we're when we're treating and diagnosing 
that we're looking thoroughly at the entire thyroid gland. And I'll get off of that because, see, I'm doing it Um, (laughs) because thyroid is a whole new topic. But thyroid stimulating hormone is made by the pituitary. Um, And so that's a marker of function of the the, um, thyroid gland, but it's also looking at a marker of the pituitary gland. The pituitary also, as Carly mentioned, stimulates progesterone. So progesterone levels, when they are too low, can drive things like fluid retention, bloating, can drive things like increased anxiety, um, and can also drive loss of appetite. In fact, um, in the elderly population, we use a, a medication called Megase, which is synthetic progesterone to stimulate the elderly's appetite when they kind of get apathetic or depressed and, and lose their, their drive to eat. The pituitary gland also makes the ADH, which is the antidiuretic hormone. This plays a role with thirst regulation. This plays a role with urination, so fluid in the body as well. Um, Beyond the progesterone, the pituitary really regulates fluid as a gland. And then um, the pituitary also plays a role in growth hormone, so stimulating bone growth, stimulating, especially in children, that can play a big role with height, um, development, and then growth hormone we know stimulates the sexual hormones, so things like testosterone indirectly, and then um, uh, oxytocin as well, which is which is going to be a female hormone, plays a big role with um, female health, especially in uh, fertility and things such as that. Okay, so that's everything covered in the pituitary. We talked about the hypothalamus, so let's talk about the A for adrenal, which is a lot of the bread and butter, I think, of what we do because so I, yeah. many people have this adrenal fatigue, which I like, you got to reel it in on this one because that's going to be a whole episode. We're yeah. going to definitely talk about adrenal fatigue. Yeah, I, I think adrenals are the star of the show. I mean, when you think of the word adrenaline, you know, I didn't go into that because uh, I explained only some of the elements of stress response in the body, but during stress, we surge adrenaline. And, you know, layman's terms for adrenaline is epinephrine. And norepinephrine is also made by the adrenal gland. And the norepinephrine is kind of the check and balance for the epinephrine. Um, So we make our adrenaline in the adrenal gland. We also make our cortisol, which is another popular, I, I think, hormone. Cortisol stimulates belly fat. Cortisol is going to play an influence on our sleep cycles. Cortisol, when too low can actually drive inflammation in the body and can drive excessive histamine response. So I'll often notice with patients that say, hey, you know, when I moved to Houston, I I started to have to take Zyrtec every day or an antihistamine every day. And I'll track beyond, of course, you know, Houston isn't the cleanest city. Yes, there are, you know, maybe more air pollutants and whatever, depending on where they came from. But also we're tracking, well, how did your quality of life change when you moved here? How did your stress response change? Because often when we see low adrenal output, we see increased histamine response, which is going to be things like itchy eyes, uh, runny nose, um, and often that can be masked by chronic antihistamine use, you know. Um, And then the antihistamines can further drive adrenal dysfunction. And then histamine response can also be seen in increased food sensitivities in the body, Cortisol, when too high, can be an immunosuppressant. So cortisol is a steroid hormone. So in the autoimmune population, they'll often use things like prednisone, which are other steroid hormones, which suppress the immune system from attacking itself. So cortisol could drive inflammation, excessive histamine response when it's low, or when it's high, it's going to kind of shut down the immune function, which that can lead to that surveillance system of the immune system kind of checking out per se, and that can lead to increased cancer risks. So that's where we would tie biochemically high stress to tumorigenic activity and, and cancer and things like that. 
And I think with cortisol, everyone always says, isn't cortisol really bad? And the best way probably to describe it is that much like soy, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah. You know, there's a sweet spot. It's too high, there causes issues. Too low, it's there's issues. So we run serum tests to look at your cortisol levels. Salivary. Salivary. Not serum, yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. So, salivary, yes. So spit, um, saliva. And usually we start with a four-point cortisol test to see this cascade where it's normally elevated in the morning. So you're waking up with energy and chirping with the birds, and then it slowly cascades down so that by the time you're ready to go to bed, it's lower. But there's people who peak mid-morning, or there's people who just flatline. And so it's really this kind of sweet spot, this this L-shaped curve that's appropriate um, and often we'll look at kind of if you're waking up in the middle of the night, we'll give you an extra reading to see if it's spiking in the middle of the night, stimulating you to wake up that adrenaline rush Ali was talking about. Definitely. And what's interesting too, uh, aldosterone is also made by the adrenal glands. This plays a role with blood pressure regulation. Um, what's also interesting is, you know, often people that have a response to a blood pressure medication get a dry cough that's also tied to the cortisol response. And then and another thing to consider is, and dry cough in general, you always want to look at how are the adrenals functioning for sure. And then um, the other elements, I talked about the norepinephrine and epinephrine. Again, the epinephrine is more of the stimulating adrenaline. The norepinephrine is saying no more epinephrine, kind of that check-in balance. And then dopamine is also produced by the adrenal glands. Um, something that I want to just touch on real quick is, when we are doing this assessment of this HPA access, yes, if we're if we're not doing a salivary assessment, which if you feel you may have adrenal fatigue, and we'll get into that more deeper into that episode, I suppose, but if you're resonating with these symptoms that I'm mentioning, definitely I'd recommend doing a neurohormone complete panel. Um, and that's gonna really look at different pieces of, of this puzzle for sure. Um, but with that being said, when we're trying to typecast patients, you can even start with a stress assessment. Um, and a stress assessment is, you know, a downloadable form that we have on our website. And the stress assessment is going to look at, are you over or under HPA reactive? And really what that's looking for is, are you stressed and uh, wired, which would be that overreactive piece? Or are you stressed and tired, which is this underreactive piece? And so this is looking at, are you putting out too much cortisol? Are you putting out too little? So Because we're going to treat things absolutely differently based on that. But if you're really using strategic intervention, you do want the lab values for sure. And while we're talking about cortisol... Can you touch on, Allie, the cortisol steel that you often mention in clinical practice? Yeah, yeah. So it's also important to notice that, um, oh, I didn't mention one big player. I think this will connect the dots with that. Um, the adrenals also make DHEA. So DHEA is another steroid hormone precursor, and this drives, uh, it plays a big role with stress resilience and stress tolerance. And this is DHEA, not DHA in fish oil. I, I just want to say that because a lot of patients I'll talk about DHEA, and they'll be like, oh, yeah, I'm taking that. It's in my Nordic Naturals. And I'm like, no, no, that's DHA. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, it's not a type of an omega-3. This is a steroid hormone, DHEA. And this is a precursor towards testosterone and estradiol. Um, we talk a lot about the differences of the types of estrogens in, is that episode six on, I think, breast cancer prevention and hormones. Carly will look into that. We'll let you guys know. But anyway, um, estradiol is the most dominant form of estrogen in the body. And testosterone, we know, plays a big role with vigor, sex drive, uh, lean body mass. And, um, you know, so... 
DHEA drives hormones. Now, what's important to acknowledge is just like the adrenals can help the body make hormones with the cortisol steal, if we are in excessive cortisol response, like really high stress, and we're taking synthetic hormone or bio or bioidentical hormones. So maybe we're using birth control, which is the synthetic hormone. Maybe we have a testosterone patch. Maybe we have a testosterone gel, or maybe we're using a transdermal hormonal cream or taking an oral uh, bioidentical or synthetic hormone. Often with the cortisol steal, the uh, adrenals are going to take that floating hormone and convert that back into cortisol. And that's not going to allow the hormones to reset. So it's really important if you see that you're low in progesterone or low in a hormone, maybe before doing a hormonal intervention, you start with this HPA access to correct things. Otherwise, you're just adding fuel to the fire and it's going to continue to drive this whole body dysfunction. Did I, I don't know if I fully covered that, but, but no, that makes that's sense. Thing. Yeah. And I think it's, just goes back to everything else that certain hormones can turn into other hormones. So it's never just a clear A to B to C. Yeah. Right. I mean, I know historically I, I have seen within myself, my progesterone levels dip within response to stress. And I know the first time that I noticed that they, well, I found out that they were low from labs. I didn't want to start on a bioidentical hormone. I wanted to work my HPA axis. So I wanted to work with maca. Uh, maca is a Peruvian root that stimulates the pituitary gland. And so my whole intervention was, you know, let's fuel the pituitary. Let's fuel with an adaptogen. It's what's called an adaptogen, meaning that it helps the body to adapt to high stress demand. At that time, um, I was running the, the, that physician's medical practice. I was having interrupted sleep. Um, and so when I talked to my OBGYN, she wanted to start me on hormone. And I said, I just really feel like I need to resolve the root cause, you know. Um, and so I worked with the maca. And the maca, in turn, helped to bring the progesterone up, but also re reduce the HPA axis imbalance. So we were able to kind of treat upstream versus downstream because just working with progesterone could have driven my cortisol high. At that point, my cortisol was moderate, but it could have gone high. Um, so it's something to be mindful of with that stealing effect. And that's one of the supplement interventions we're going to talk about. But before we go into a couple of the others that we really like, let's talk about how stress can impact us, this access and how it shows itself in terms of if you're hyporeactive or hyperreactive yeah. and symptoms and disease states that develop. So yes, overreactions in the HPA access is going to be seen as um, hyperreactivity, of course. So hyper versus hypo. Overreactions is going to typically be demonstrated in autoimmune disease and inflammation. So anywhere from a cascade of things like rheumatoid arthritis or fibromyalgia, um, inflammatory bowel disease, which is you know ulcerative colitis or Crohn's. Um, we're looking at also things like Sogren's disease or Sojourn's. I always say that one differently. Um, we're looking at any autoimmune anomaly, so even thyroiditis or Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Um, anytime the body is attacking itself, that's typically because the HPA axis is on overdrive. And then beyond autoimmune disease markers or specific classifications, we're going to see inflammation. The immune system is going to respond with overdrive of those cytokines, those leukotrienes, those prostaglandins, all of these inflammatory mediators. So we could see chronic pain. Um, we can also see weight gain. And that also drives, of course, with that, that cortisol response. Um, when we talk about inflammation, 
we really think about the influences of pain, redness, tenderness to touch, and then also fluid retention. Um, and so, you know, if you think of like bumping your elbow on a table, you're going to retain fluid in that injury, and that's your immune system trying to protect the rest of your arm from that injury spreading. It doesn't know that it was a one-time elbow bump. And so if you're holding inflammation throughout your entire system, that's going to be a lot of fluid retention, which you might notice in like edema, rings fitting differently, or sock line, but you might also just systemically throughout your body be holding it, and that could be creating stubborn weight, uh, weight gain or stubborn ability to lose weight, you know, just holding on that body weight. Okay. And then beyond hyperreactivity where the body's attacking itself or showing itself an inflammation, there's the hyporeactivity. Right. So hypo would be underreactivity of, of the immune system. And this is where I talked about, you know, when that cortisol's too um, high, we can often see the immune system being suppressed or a compromised immune system. Now, also, we could see high cortisol in the hyper response, but in the hypo response, this is when the entire um, HP axis is pooped, per se, and this is when that surveillance system or immune system kind of checks out. So we're going to see much more susceptibility to virus, bacteria, yeast, uh, pathogens, or, or um, disease-causing uh, compounds. Um, we're also going to see higher susceptibility towards cancer. And then we will see that adrenal fatigue, um, seasonal allergy response, in increased histamine response, and um, you know just more more illness, more sickness in general. So, Ali, let's say we're talking to a client and they have issues that seem to originate in the hypothalamus, some in the adrenals, some in the pituitary. How do you approach treatment? Do you say your DHEA is low? Let's supplement with DHEA? Or do I say I need to work and tone the whole gland? Where do you start? Where do you prioritize? And how do your interventions kind of play out? It's so uh, individualized and specified based on the lab values. So, you know, for instance, if DHEA is low and cortisol is low, I may intervene with both. And it depends on how low. You know, and so I think that's something really big to stress. If it's in the 30s and we want it at 150, I may start with 25 milligrams of DHEA, you know, for three months um, in conjunction with a adrenal glandular supporter to fuel both the output of the cortisol, of the epinephrine, of the norepinephrine, of the dopamine, and the DHEA. Um, but before using DHEA, I also want to look at, is there excessive estrogen um, in the estradiol or is there excessive testosterone? Knowing that DHEA is a direct driver of those hormones, I if there's imbalance in the hormones of either of those particular hormones, I'm not going to drive with DHEA. I'm going to only drive with fueling the adrenal gland. Um, and if there's too much of either of those hormones, I might actually work in those hormonal pathways to block expression to help the DHEA stay as DHEA because it might be over converted into one of those hormones. So you can maintain healthy DHEA by interfering with its conversion pathways, or you can drive DHEA if both hormones are deficient, which is common too, you know, like in a perimenopause or menopausal woman, she might be low T low E2 um, and low DHEA and low cortisol, DHEA plus adrenal glandular, absolutely appropriate. Um, so, so um, you know, that's really, we have to take all those components into account. Um, and then I think the other piece of it was, you know, how do we know beyond the adrenals uh, what to use and, and where to target? So I, I mentioned with the pituitary specifically, we like to focus on things like maca, 
um, which is an adaptogen. And adaptogenic herbs in general can be used for the entire HPA access. So even, you know, like we use Adraset a lot. That's not an adrenal formula. That's an adaptogen formula. So that's a comprehensive HPA formula. Um, and so that's going to be using compounds that help to adapt to high stress so that these glands aren't overworking. Um, and so it's going to help us to have that vigor, have that drive, have that cognitive processing without pooping them out per se or overexerting them. Um, and so things like ashwagandha root, things like rhodiola, things like ginseng, these are all adaptogenic herbs. And, and those, again, help us to adapt to high stress. Now, if an individual is overreactive, then I might also work with nervines. And nervines are a classification of drugs that, um, sorry, not drugs, herbs. Nervines are herbs that help to reduce the excitatory expression um, by actually having calmative influence. So adaptogens reduce excitatory expression by still giving us excitatory response, um, stimulating per se. Uh, the nervines reduce the excitatory expression by actually mellowing us out. So nervines are things like valerian, chamomile, skullcap. Um, so these are things that are going to be more sedative, helping more during sleep time or helping for our high HPA access drivers or high cortisol, um, magnolia bark. These are things that reduce cortisol expression and, and bring down those values. So it really depends on the patient. You know, if a patient is experiencing brain fog, fatigue, lack of clarity, I'm not going to give them a nervine because then they're going to feel like a space cadet. You know, they're kind of like, whoa, all day. Um, maybe a high-powered attorney that is having tightness in their chest that's go, go, going and can't slow down their brain is having difficulty concentrating. Maybe they need an adaptogen with a nervine blend so they can still stay cognitively focused, but they have some of that landing gear per se to not overexpress. Um, and it's just, it's just so individualized, but it's important to note that Herbs have a little bit more of a liberal um, application, meaning, you know, as, as long as we're following a first do no harm mantra, they're not a liver toxin, and the herbs are uh, from a good source because that's huge. There's so much issues with mold contamination with herbs and things like that. Um, but herbs have a lot more forgiveness or give and take, whereas driving with steroid hormones like DHEA or I, I never work with hydroxycortisone or, or, or steroids per se directly like cortisol, prednisone, because those can really throw the access off if, if not done stringently and, you know, really monitoring lab values. And I think the biggest feedback from all this is that if you help the body not be so impacted by stress in whatever form it's coming in, the body is a beautiful thing and kind of can re-regulate itself. Incredibly resilient, yes. So uh -huh. as long as you're the impact that you're giving it day to day from whatever you're dealing with in life, it yeah. will re-regulate. So it, it's supporting it in ways that it needs it to maybe get you over a hump. Right, But then to pull back so the body can start making it on its own. And I think that's why we focus so much on sleep cycles, you know, ensuring that our patients are sleeping a minimum of seven hours a night and getting restful sleep. I often ask, are you dreaming and things like this? Because getting sleep as a big priority helps to regulate all of this access for sure. The deep breathing that we talked about, meditation. Meditation is really the only way to directly influence the hypothalamus. And so when we're talking about the metabolism, we're talking about 
satiety, we're talking about, you know, so even as a, a as someone who's looking to lose weight, it's wild to think that meditation can boost their metabolism, but it totally can. Um, meta- meditation can boost your thyroid output. It can help you regulate your body temperature. And so, you know, these lifestyle elements, I think, are just as key. It's like like we talk, I, I say all the time, that the supplements are a tool, but you need to work in synergy with the lifestyle change. And um, I think diet interventions are a whole nother <laughs> kit and caboodle for, mm-hmm. for fueling the adrenal glands and the, the HP axis for sure. I was just going to say, I'm pretty sure in another episode we've mentioned that it might, might be frustrating to hear, but one of the biggest interventions that always has to come first is regulating stress, which I don't think anyone wants to hear because they yeah. just want a Band-Aid. You know, yeah. tell me what to take. And it's frustrating, but also empowering to know that if you can regulate your stress and do some deep breathing and make some changes in your day-to-day and, and yeah. habits, you can have clinical outcomes. Absolutely. And, and and taking tools to get you there is fine too. And I think that that's totally reasonable. I have patients that are like, there is no way I'm meditating right now. I hear you. I get it. I've read the research, but it's just not fitting in my life. Sure. And then those patients may need to take eight formulas <laughs> To compensate. And and then as they are feeling better, hopefully, then they'll get on board and be able to reduce their supplement load. But at that time, you know, that patient's going to need a sleep aid, that patient's going to need nervines, and they're going to need adaptogens and probably some glandulars drivers. And um, another one we we didn't talk about is uh, pregnenolone. And um, pregnenolone is really the, the granddaddy precursor steroid hormone. So even further uh, behind DHEA, as far as the production pathways go, pregnenolone even makes things like cholesterol. And um, pregnenolone is going to drive all steroid hormone expression. So if someone is across the board low, low cortisol, low every hormone, low cholesterol, hypocholesterolemia, I see this often with my post-traumatic stress patients that they need pregnenolone to get them out of the woods and help their whole body to resurge. So I don't think it's at all a a weakness to think about. It's a tool, um, but you have to use these tools wisely and ensure that you're not uh, creating more imbalance by, by using them and that you're truly fueling the right pathway for sure. And let's just talk about, you've mentioned a glandular a couple times. Let's yep. just tell everyone what a glandular is and what it can target. Sure. So a glandular is, is as it sounds, it's a gland uh, from an animal. Um, and so typically for adrenal gland, we're, we're going to be using bovine. Um, I, I don't believe there's much porcine or pork derived. Uh, we would use porcine gland with like pancreatic enzymes. That's typically going to be porcine derived. Um, but glandulars for adrenals are typically bovine derived or cow derived. And it's actually the adrenal gland of the cow. Um, and it's not very controversial. Um, if there are any medical professionals listening, you might think, whoa, now you lost me. But I mean, thinking of things like Armour Thyroid, which is well accepted as a pharmaceutical agent, Armour Thyroid is adrenal gland, I'm sorry, thyroid glandular. Um, and so there are medical outcomes of using glands that we've been using them for thousands of years to treat glands that are dysfunctional. So it makes sense that the gland that isn't working needs compounds of that gland to help to fuel its function. So um, glandulars can be used in synergy with adaptogens or nervines, where the adaptogen and the nervine reduces the stress to the gland, and then the glandular fuels the gland's function so that the gland can actually rebound without being so taxed. 
So, you know, we're reducing the demand on it from the herbs, and then we are fueling the gland function, and then we can hopefully take out that leg of the stool, and the gland can be, can be functioning optimally. And I think a good question is, someone asked me the other day in clinic, is this something that you can become dependent on? That's a good question to address. Yeah, yeah. And, and it, again, it so depends on the circumstance. I mean, dependent, no. Um, but is it going to influence the way that you feel? Absolutely. Um, with adrenal dysfunction, adrenal fatigue, it's a minimum of a 12-month, if not 18-month recovery process. And the outlier influence is managing your stress lifestyle. So if you're treating your adrenals for three three years, excuse me, because you haven't made changes, you know, you're still working 18 hour days, you're still not sleeping, then you're going to be dependent on it because, you know, you're not changing, you're not going to rebound. If you're taking the strides to rebound the gland, um, lifestyle-wise supporting as well as the synergy of the herbs in the gland, then you should, as I mentioned, be able to pull that, that leg out of the stool. So unfortunately, the part that's confusing about all of this, and I think when I see a patient that their most patients' results improve, every now and then there's a patient's results that don't, and the outlier is stress. Oh, you, oh well, you you relocated. Oh, your daughter got married. Oh, you know, uh, or you got married. This and that happened in this time period. Oh, oh, you graduated from med school, or you know, you had this and that going on. Your dissertation. Well, you needed more tools, and we were just keeping you functional. What would we have done without that? Um, and, and so I think that's imp- important to acknowledge is that sure. there is that dynamic that's not a stagnant influence. Stress is something that's constantly and chronically changing. And so the amount of time of uh, recovery per se is very individualized and, and takes both pieces of the puzzle. And I think a lot of people accept that, you know, like, again, the people who are like, whoa, look, I'm not, yeah. I'm not making these changes. Um, I'm just going to need this tool. And they feel better about using that tool, knowing that they're not burning out to non-functional and flatlining. Right. Um, so no, I don't think you can become dependent. I think the amount of time that you need it is varied on the individual Um, But I do feel that we are fueling the body towards resilience and recovery, not dependency. So, Okay, let's finish up by just touching on L-theanine and its function. Yeah, so L-theanine is another magic bullet per se. Um, L-theanine is an amino acid derivative, and this is a modulator or a pilot for the brain. So I usually use L-theanine when I'm looking at my patient's neurotransmitter results, looking at things like serotonin and GABA, which are the inhibitory mellower outers. GABA is another thing that we can use. Um, GABA um, can help with anxiety from things like public speaking or flying and things like that. A lot of anti-anxiety drugs work on the GABA response, um, and GABA can play a role with pain perception. So, you know, when too low, can have more anxiety. Um, so uh, serotonin, GABA, dopamine, norepinephrine, epinephrine, and glutamate are, are big drivers of neurotransmitter function, and L-theanine can modulate all of these. And so it can actually help to increase those that are deficient. It can actually help to decrease those that are in excess. Um, and so, you know, when a patient is just widely imbalanced, L-theanine, 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 it's kind of like the, the, the magic bullet, like I said. Um, L-theanine is seen in the bloodstreams during deep meditation. So it, I hate to say that as like a, a cheater's way <laughs> to get the benefits of meditation, but in a way it is, really. Um, and it's also seen during the REM cycles of sleep. So, you know, this is what's really bioavailable when we're achieving that zen, like, mellow-out state. So it makes sense that it helps the body to reset and and, um, kind of rebound on all ends. 
Um, L-theanine is derived typically from green tea, and it is highest in the food matcha. Um, and so I talked about maca, M-A-C-A, which is uh, the Peruvian root, a white powder found in, um, you know, Peru, I guess, <laughs> Peruvian. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> that's the one that works on the pituitary gland. Matcha is a uh, type of green tea that is grown in shade um, that actually increases the L-theanine 10 plus times as well as the caffeine in the green tea. And then that green tea leaf is ground into a powder. So the entire tea, rather than being steeped, that powder is consumed. Um, And uh, matcha is a great food as medicine intervention for L-theanine. So if you're just hearing this and and feeling a little fatigued and not ready to invest in the panel and really get started on digging into this, matcha would be a great step. Um, And then, or working with L-theanine, we also use L-theanine with our ADHD population, weaning them off of ADHD medications or just helping with concentration behavior, mellowing out. It's non-sedative. It actually can help with alertness, but again, it can also help you calm down. So it's that total balancer in the body. Um, and, and, and just before we kind of go to close, I want to mention that if you haven't made anything with matcha, you can search that ingredient on our blog on AllieMillerRD.com. And um, we have a really awesome matcha parfait. It's a matcha chia parfait with mango and chia seeds, Greek yogurt, berries. It's, it's awesome. Um, I like to start my day with that a couple of times a week for sure. And um, we also have a uh, matcha keto tea in there as well um, where we blend coconut oil and grass-fed butter and I think a little bit of ginger with the matcha. Um, also a great thing you could use with um, intermittent fasting or um, just a good way to kind of help ground the body midday or, or to start your day off. And I'm pretty sure there's a matcha stress-busting smoothie in there somewhere. I think there's a, yeah. Some version of that. We, we were on a pretty big matcha kit. <laughs> I think we did a couple in there for sure. And also be sure to check out the shop tab for L-theanine, for Adrenogen, for maca. Of course, ask us questions for dosing. Um, We don't want you to. But if you read the label, it's it's typically a good starting place. It's always good to have individualized attention, but we're happy to answer questions. Again, on the bottom of the podcast page, you can send us an inquiry. But check out the shop tab for a lot of these supplements to ensure that they're medical grade, third-party assessed, potent nutraceuticals. That's Definitely. the most important part. So I hope today's topic didn't stress you out. <laughs> um, I hope that you're inspired to uh, realize that you can fuel your body with food as medicine and functional medicine. And um, hopefully uh, with the tools we offer on AllieMillerRD.com, you can empower yourself to reset the HPA axis of your body, which can, can drive whole body health. Thanks for listening. All right. Tune in next time, guys. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished Podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Carly at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well.